Attention to roll call. Welcome to the 265 Police Live Series. Brought to you by the New York's finest retired and unfiltered podcast. The mission of this podcast is to provide expert analysis of past and present law enforcement related events with a trained eye. Listen to the boots on the ground weigh in on the court of public opinion. All right, ladies and gentlemen, here we are. Uh, another time that we discover the 265 Police Live series. We are the experts. And here we are to give you the truth on matters uh, that we choose, different police events. But today, I think it's going to be a little bit different. Not actually just a police video, but we'd like to talk about an article that surfaced today. I think it's a great opportunity for us to reflect on it. And, and then what I want the public to understand and I always say this, there's a thousand ways to tell a lie and there's only one way to tell the truth. And initially, the first article that had, that had a roast was about myself being the most complained cop and really was the birth of this, uh, this, this 265 Police Live series where I felt I was now given an opportunity to send out a message about the atrocities of the Civilian Complaint Review Board and also Cop Watch Unit and other various organizations that have this ideology to abolish the police. And now what's interesting about this is I was actually contacted, John, you know, I was actually contacted by the reporter that initially put out that article from the city and from the city, other uh, papers had taken that article and put it out there and even made it to Channel 4 News. I remember my mother called me and said, what the hell happened over here? So, you know, to his credit, I will say the reporter did contact me and say that he was fascinated, impressed that he actually listened to the two part interview that where you had given me the opportunity to send out the message about the anti-crime trained eye, about what it is our perspective police work. However, I did see the tides kind of change. So I remember the day before that he actually published the article, I spoke to the reporter and he kept reiterating that he was trying to be fair. So I, I really, I started to, you know, start to resonate and I could, I, I got the idea of what was going on here. Cause I said to myself, why do you have to try to, to be fair? I mean, to be fair, that's something that you just have to draw it right in the middle. Uh, so it was obvious to me that maybe initially his intentions were to put out the perspective of police work, you know, actually from my experience. But I, I'm pretty confident uh, because he was kind of being vague with his responses that he was probably getting pushed back from his editors. So what I want the public to know is that I'm not shying away from who I speak to as far as police perspective. It's not going to be just right-wing papers or right-wing articles or left-wing. I'm willing to talk to anyone. And that's why I was willing to talk to this reporter. And I still am. It's just if you get an opportunity to see this article, you're going to see there's a lot of pushback from the other organizations. And they give the ideology that it's just my reality of policing. But the policing that I'm talking about is policing that John and I were taught through the, the era of the broken windows theory and also the stuff that transitioned into the trained eye, the observation skills of an anti-crime cop. So I got the impression from this paper that I read that it's really about 
my reality and that my reality doesn't coincide with the reality of police work. So, John, if you could give some insight to this, I know it's a little bit long winded, but I really wanted to give the perspective on what's going on here. So if you could kind of let the public know what's going on with this article and, and where we're at right now. Yeah, so just just a backstory on all this. You know, uh, Dim had reached out to me prior to retiring when he thought that, you know, he thought that like he was going to have to retire, not in good standing, not with a good guy letter because CCRB was looking to fire him. And he, you know, he's like, he's like, hey, listen, I've been looking at everything you're doing. I want to come on the podcast. I want to highlight my experience. I want the public to know about what's actually going on on the street. I want to use my career as an example to try to make things better. And I do think, and then, you know, uh, Eric came on, we got thousands of downloads on that podcast. Um, You know, it's a two part series. It's a four hour podcast. I can't tell you how many people have reached out to me about it. Um, Thanking Eric, um, thanking me, and, you know, people that weren't cops were just amazed telling me how they feel like they're going through, they went through police training. Like they, they were sitting down on a day at the academy. Um, just so much. So I, I thank all you guys really for listening. It. I really, again, I, 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 my whole intention, I just started this as a, this whole podcast as like, as like a, a therapy, as a way to just vent out my frustrations and give guys an opportunity to memorialize their career and speak on their perspectives the same way that I got an opportunity to do that. And I think that we have important words and I think Eric's was a special podcast and, you know, it's gotten a lot of media. So yes, uh, Yov Gone reached out um, and he, I, and I, I will, I will give him credit. You know, he helped get your story out there. Um, he wrote, a very lengthy article. I do believe the article leans stronger with the opinions of, of the agencies, but I think that any cop that reads this, and I think anyone that listens to this podcast and reads those comments from the CCRB, from the ACLD, from the New York civil liberties union and all of them really see the big picture. You went into total perspective you went in on that podcast. You didn't hold back on anything. You told your viewpoint on everything. You actually broke down procedure, policy, and the law. They made comments, and that was it. And and just on a back note, I invited all of them on here, and so has Eric, numerous times to come on, sit down, and let's discuss what they meant by any of those comments. And to date, none of them will come on because – they're the the ones that are really full of crap is Jose LaSalle and the rest of them because they cannot even they can't hold up to their comments. So uh, you know, we're just gonna go over the article. We're gonna go over the article. Dim, I'd I'd like to read it out to you and just get your opinions on uh on the statements made, if uh if you're all right with that. Absolutely. All right. So so the article starts in the city. It was also published in the Gothamist, it was published in Daily UK Mail, it was published in um ton of city papers uh amsterdam new amsterdam paper um so you know ton of different versions of this article if you just google lieutenant dim this is lieutenant eric dim this is his new uh round of uh, articles that just came out so <laughs> all basically right around this thing um so uh, the title of the article is the nypd's most complained about cop speaks out in defense of aggressive arrests 
What do you think about that title? Uh, it's interesting that when you just at the surface, if you just read this quickly, it sounds like, okay, it's just about a rest. But you, when you really pick this apart, it's interesting. And I believe I, I've heard you say this before, but it's interesting that it's the controversy seems to be, well, particularly the emphasis on the con controversy of this is the arrest. But the controversy, and that's where I think that's sometimes where we're not seeing from both sides of the lens, like the controversy. Why is the controversy not focused on the conduct of the persons of interest? of those that are arrested. But the controversy and the conduct that's evaluated is of the arrestor rather than the arrestee. So that's that, that really resonates with me. It's quite interesting when they say aggressive arrest, but they don't say aggressive perpetrators or aggressive behavior. And that's why, you know, I do find it quite interesting that here I had a four hour interview, maybe even more than more time than four hours. And, and I'm, quite confident that I, you know, it, this, I really spoke from the heart, from experience, and I, I really feel I was trying to send out impactful messages. But the only message that they could put out is that I'm justifying only arrest, or since there's things that you don't want to see, what do you want to see? And those are questions. They are. But I think there's a lot more substance and a lot more meat on the bone in this podcast that they really could explore and shined out to the public, especially for those that haven't had an opportunity to view or listen to this particular interview, especially this two-part uh, interview episode. So uh, would you agree on that? It seems to me that it, it, when they, the spin on it is aggressive arrest. I, I don't like the title at all. I'll tell you. Uh, I, again, I'll give, I'll give Yoav credit for his story, you know, um, you know, for writing about it, because he did write he did write an article on you prior and he came back after listening to it and wrote a follow up. So I will give him credit again. I'll give him credit for writing it. Um, but I don't like the title. I don't. NYPD's most com complained about cops speaks out in defense of aggressive arrests. I don't believe that's what that four hour podcast was. I think that uh, Eric Dim, Lieutenant Eric Dim, who is the NYPD's most complained about cop, spoke out in defense of proactive policing. It wasn't it wasn't in defense of aggressive arrests. Um, but speaking of aggressive arrests, again, police officers don't dictate how aggressive or how or how non-aggressive we will be. Uh, you know, I know Dem likes to use the uh, persons of interest, but I like to use the word perpetrator. Uh, <laughs> the perpetrator does. Um, they really, you know, they really dictate the situation. You know, we, we, we bring a strong presence. You know, I know myself, I always did. And I know Eric did as well when dealing with anyone that was a potential arrestee. Um, and, you know, they're dictating that, you know, we, we're not looking to escalate that situation. We're looking to bring it to a successful conclusion without being physical, without even raising our voice, without even raising our blood pressure, honestly, because there's only so much of that you could do after whatever. So, so I'm not a fan of the title. I'm not a fan of the title at all. Um, and um, goes on a further state, Lieutenant Eric Dim, who retired in the face of stiff penalties, asked critics, what do you want to see? They have some words for him. Um, it, it's it, it, you know it, it. It's interesting to highlight on that portion that 
what do they want to see? And they have some words for him. So we hear this constantly. We've heard this in the past several years, especially through the latter part of the de Blasio area. And as the George Floyd era really started to commit the climax of it, I mean, that pivot. We would start the year that we need to reimagine and rethink policing. And yet, that's the that's where it ends. And John, you can probably agree. We hear that constantly. They love to put emphasis on these words. Reimagine, rethink police work. But they've never come up with a plan. What is the plan on how to reimagine police work? So, and I think this is where they tried to put the spin on it. So what I articulated and explained and really depicted in this podcast, just like Bob Ross, the guy that used to paint and he would pick apart and tell you about the clouds and tell you about the trees. That's the same thing that I was trying to do. The message was trying to depict in detail an arrest situation, all the moments that lead up to it. And that's the part I think that they misunderstand. When I said it's important to form a tactical plan with myself and the team when we're going out there and we have a person of interest who is eventually going to be a perpetrator, we have to go out with a tactical plan. And that tactical plan is meant to possibly meet aggression, right? If, if it, since we're, unfortunately, we have to be reactive to the perpetrator or person of interest is going to dictate the amount of force that may be needed or the, the, how the tactical plan will play out. But the intent for a tactical plan is quite the opposite. It's so that there is the least amount of aggression needed as possible. And, and I don't think they understand what a tactical plan is. A tactical plan is just exactly, it's a plan of a team working together of how they're going to isolate a person of interest to alleviate and de-escalate the possibility of using force and also to control the entire incident. I was saying, because you're not grabbing one person, you're not grabbing two, you're grabbing an entire incident. It's a whole scenario that we need to control. These things need to be moved in quickly and out. So if they, if that's what they mean by aggressive, I think they're really trying to put a point out that I, I think the point that they're trying to make with aggression is that we're going out there and initially just beating people with our fists and then coming up with a plan. And that's completely a farce. Have fists been deployed in instance grabbing perpetrators with firearms? Yes, but it's a resort because the person of interest dictated it with a violent struggle, violent resisting, trying to attack the officers. And we had to overcome, overcome aggression and resistance to get this person in custody. So it's interesting with the, uh, the vagueness. And I think it's, it's meant, the word aggressive, I think is meant to discredit my perspective. Uh, I, I, would you agree on that? I just, I just, I think it's misleading. I think that uh, aggressive arrests, I don't think, again, I don't think that you spoke out in defense of aggressive arrest. I believe you spoke out in, in, in defense of pro, uh, proactive policing, you know, and, you know, and it's funny, you talk about reimagine and you did, you asked a question and, and I've, I've asked the question before too. What do you want to see? What do you expect of a police officer? But the only thing we get in return is words. They have some words. Me and you are sitting here explaining in detail 
what police work is, what that type of police work that they said was, uh, you know, the mistakes of the past commonly referred to, right? It was the, the, those are the mistakes of the past, yet those mistakes made New York City the safest big city in the world. Um, you know, business people, people going to work, families, children playing in the park, elderly, disabled, all of those people roamed around New York City free while those mistakes were happening. So I don't know if those were the mistakes of the past. I feel like today is the mistakes because we're, we're going more towards words. They have some words. So they're not willing to reimagine. And, and you know, I think we both sat out, sat in that podcast and spoke about the, the, the pitfalls of broken windows and the numbers game when it became quota driven and how we could have improved on that. But instead of improving on some of areas that, that, and and I, I think we could always do better every day. We could, we could change every day. We could learn something new, make something better, but instead they tore down a whole system. And instead of coming back and sitting down at the table and actually reimagining and telling us what they do expect from a police officer, they just throw out comments and words, baseless words, and we're going to get to them. So let's move on in, the, in this article. All right. The NYPD's most complained Absolutely. about. All right. Um, the NYPD's most complained about cop who accumulated 56 substantiated allegations of misconduct against him by the Civilian Complaint Review Board before retiring last month is speaking out in defense of proactive policing by the anti-crime units that were reconstituted this year by Mayor Eric Adams. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the statement, but I just want to make something in that statement. He does go on to, to say that you did speak out in defense of proactive policing. The anti-crime units have not been reinstated by New York City Mayor Adams. That was a dog and pony show. That is not the anti-crime team that me and Dim served on. That is not the anti-crime teams of the past. They do not because the men and women cannot do that job. They're, they're capable. They're fully capable of doing it. You have many great officers there. They don't have the tools to do it. They don't have the laws. They don't have the DAs in place. It's so that's so let's just get that back right there. Eric Adams was full of shit. We don't have anti-crime teams in New York City. Well, this is one big paradox because the ideology, Adams, even with the minimal and I and let's be honest, the minimal amount of police experience that he has, he knows that anti-crime works. That's why he tried to come out with this quasi type model because they know it works otherwise they wouldn't even try to simulate it but to appease the public they came out with this funky looking uniform to appease the public and try to apply the same rules and the same ideology of anti-crime but it's not working and the reason why is anyone with anti-crime skills and talent that was actually out there doing proactive policing their records are peppered up and they're not capable of working on these new teams because they want these guys to have a clear record to be a part of these teams. And we all know that's a byproduct of doing proactive policing. That if you're doing this type of work, and that's what I'm saying, that the Civilian Complaint Review Board is going to have you on their radar and you're going to get complaints. The byproduct would be complaints from self-initiated complaints by body camera, self-initiated complaints by third-party witnesses, complaints by the actual perpetrators that are instilled by the by the attorneys that drive them to make these complaints. And in, in addition to that, these uh, 
anti-crime guys that are not capable of doing it now, they're being replaced with guys that really don't have much experience in doing this type of police work. And I thought it was probably, it was, it, it really piqued my curiosity. And you probably saw this, John, also, that in one of the, one of the requirements or criteria that was that you can, you can have a minimum of two and a half years on the job to do neighborhood safety teams. And you and I know that two and a half years on the street is not enough experience to do the neighborhood safety team or anti-crime type police work that they want. But the reason why, and I like to explain to the public, the reason why they're going to target police officers, and I won't say cops, because two and a half years on a job, I don't think you've really earned that title of being a cop yet. Maybe there's, there is a few selected cop guys out there, but let me explain it to the public. We're all police officers when you wear this uniform or not. We all bear the badge. But it's an honor to be called a cop. And over time, you earn that by having good observation skills, by working with your peers, by having trained eyes, by helping the public. You earn the right to be called cop by your fellow police officers, your fellow cops. But the reason why they want guys with two and a half years on the job is because they're so new that their records have not been peppered up yet. So they could have a sergeant with five cops and say, listen, these guys all have clean records. But they also have a lot of handicaps with them. They have body cameras. They also have a, ca- a dash cam inside the car. They have a uniform that's completely identifiable. The only thing that they don't have is a patch on the side. I mean, this is completely silly. What, what do you think? <laughs> yeah, like I said, it's, it's, not, it's not anti-crime, you know. It's, 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 it's a joke. <laughs> You know, and I, what's funny about it is, yeah, he did. He does know, and Mayor Eric Adams, he does know anti-crime works because he probably was a little envious when he was a cop. He probably seen those guys coming in and out. He would have never made that team if, you know, maybe unless he had a political connection with one of the COs, he would have never made it based upon his experience. So, uh, but but again, like it's not because they don't. You have very capable men and women still working for this department that are young on the job. I've worked with a bunch of them, um, but they, uh, they don't have the tools. So it's, it's not a fair statement to say. Um, oh, I, absolutely. And I reflect on that even more. I mean, you, I, I would always have, I would pick the best of the best for these teams. Everyone that was on my anti-crime teams when I was a sergeant, but also as a lieutenant was handpicked. And these teams, and what the public does is say, these teams, you know, I, I read it in, in the article. I, I'm not sure if it was in the city or if it was one of these other articles that came out and put their own spin on it. Well, I remember one of them I read and said that uh, the anti-crime unit was uh, composed of a group of burly men that got out and grabbed people. And, and I, I, I guess they're trying to make them sound like they're a bunch of bouncers that uh, don't have any knowledge and just kind of get out of the car like ogres and grab people. And it's quite the opposite. Because I used to build my teams like you would build a football team or you would build a basketball team, right? There would be a point guard. There was a shooting guard. There's a center. So I used to always build my teams. Obviously, the sergeant had to be an effective leader. He had to be a role model and a mentor to these particular cops. And then on that team, let's say I had five guys. One guy would have to be an amazing, you know, excellent driver. And that's a really important skill that I ever had. And then I would always have one guy in the team who would be an excellent runner. Because let's be honest, when someone is being approached in possession of a legal firearm, 
it's always a heightened risk that they're going to run. I'd always have someone on the team that was excellent computer savvy and would do the research and analysis. And I always have someone on the team that was excellent as the point of contact. This person could talk to anyone, diffuse situations. And then I'd always have someone on the team that had DI. Now, obviously, we want them all to have the observation skills, but there's always that one guy that has exceptional eye, and he'd be, he'd be the one to make most of these observations. And it was like Voltron. Remember Voltron as a kid? You know, yeah. you take the cards, you put them together, I form the head. That's exactly what it was. We used to take all these pieces, and we put them together, and we would form an effective team. There's so much more that goes on behind the scenes than – this article, what they said, just by a couple of burly men getting out of the car. I, I really don't see that as an insult. Listen, if the cops are taking care of themselves and they're burly, we should want that. Do we want timid and meek and weak individuals to pursue violent perpetrators with firearms? That doesn't even make sense. <laughs> I, 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 I can't believe this. I mean, you know, they talk about reimagining police work. I get it. They, they constantly talk about this. Were there mistakes in the past? In some ways, yes. The way I look at stop, question, frisk in the past is this. Back when we worked in the impact zones, it was like you went out there fishing and they threw out a big giant net. And in that net, we caught some big fish. We really did. But we also caught some little fish too. But that's part of the broken windows. Yes, I understand. We grabbed some people just for smoking marijuana. You know, and now here it is, it's, it's legal. And back then, yes, it's a very minutiae, it's minute, it's a violation. But if we had 10 persons of interest smoking marijuana, maybe two of them will have illegal firearms on them. So that's, that's what I talk about with the big net. So yeah, 10 people grabbed, two of them were big fish, and eight were small fish. But it was effective. And so when they talk about reimagined police work, I know there's this one person on Twitter, it's been constantly, uh, it's been constantly expressive. I think it's uh, Noel. I don't know what his real handle is. Noel something. And what he says, why don't you go out there and target and zero in on the offenders? Well, don't you think that's exactly what we're doing? That's the crime analysis, the research that we do prior to actually getting those boots on the ground. We do analysis and we zero in and we narrow in on a small area. Sometimes as the anti-crime unit, we wouldn't hit an entire development. It would literally be one building and we'd pick apart that entire building, the shot spotted detections, the actual shootings at that location. And we would know everything in that building and zero in on those target offenders. And with that, watch for behavioral indicators. So when he says you should zero in, well, that's what we're doing. You know, and, and they say, and, and there is no crystal ball. That's unfortunate. There is no crystal ball. We can stop 10 people. In, in a particular time, whether it's a day or a week, because they have the behavioral indicators that mimic the possession of a legal firearm. And in eight cases, we could be, and I don't say wrong, we can make these stops and they end up in, in negative results, but those behavioral indicators were not wrong because they did mimic the possession of a legal firearm. And in some cases, we are correct and a positive outcome isn't a legal firearm. And I think people think that, well, when you stop someone, it should be resulting in an arrest and, and that's not the case it's not a crystal ball it's just reasonable suspicion and what does reasonable suspicion mean it just means that a normal person would 
suspect someone having a firearm and we don't have a crystal ball. And, and, uh, and this is, that is part of the observation skills. No, I, it's listen, it, it, nothing's ever perfect. Right. Um, and I'll tell you right now, like I said, I think, I think you, do you, uh, the UF two fifties were a great tool. UF two fifty is a stop question first report. I think it was a great tool. I think it was used improperly. It was used improperly by weak leadership that forced young cops that didn't understand policing yet to go get them numbers in areas, but they weren't getting them in the right areas. They just wanted dots on the map of people getting stopped. It was it, they, it wasn't used properly. It was used properly by the anti-crime teams. Um, and we killed it. But again, like I said, yes, we could improve it. We shouldn't tear it down. Improve it. Fix it. Take what works. Throw out what doesn't. No, we, we didn't take what works. We threw out what works and we and and we don't even know like we don't even know what we what we replaced it with. So it's it's pretty wild. It's pretty wild. So so the article goes on and it kind of recaps your first article. And then it says earlier this month, in a two-part appearance on the podcast, New York's finest, retired and unfiltered, Dim told host John D. Macari, also a retired lieutenant, that the slew of complaints that were substantiated against him over the past few years arose largely from the rough and tumble nature of proactive policing in high crime areas. So that, that's true. You did, we did speak on that, and you just spoke on that again. But he goes on to further state, this interview serves as a rare, unvarnished glimpse into the mind of an NYPD officer regarding a controversial policing unit and his own actions, including a significant number of incidents that advocates for reform say can cause lasting harm to both individuals and the community. That's a, that, that made my heart bleed right there, that one. Uh, <laughs> what, what, what do you think about that statement, Tim? That's exactly what I was reflecting on earlier. That statement, that broad statement, is where I believe that the the writer, or maybe the pushback he was getting from his editors, was insinuating, and I say insinuating, that this was my warped sense of reality of police work, and not the NYPD's culture and style of police work. Look, I want I want to explain to the public. I didn't come up with this ideology and this training of police work to do anti-crime. I do think that over time and over years uh, with success and experience, I was able to find what works for myself in the units and perfect it. But the foundation of policing and anti-crime was instilled and we were trained by the New York City Police Department. So this is not my reality. This is our reality as far as the NYPD goes. And, and I, I'm going to go further and assume that nationwide, the foundation of it is probably similar. Now, one size uh, policing is not one size fits all, but the foundation of it is similar. Going out as a team, having plans, and that's all a tactical plan is, is having a plan to keep everyone safe, including the perpetrator, because we're not we're not a bunch of burly men like they wrote who just drive around, right? Refer to, we used to get the uh, annotation jump out boys. And that's the, they want to give the impression that we're just a, a bunch of burly men that are probably kind of dumbfounded, get in a car, drive around 
and just stop minorities in a disproportionate, a disproportionate uh, a rate of stops, and that and, and that lead to illegal firearms, and that is completely a farce. And that's why I said we don't believe the ends justify the means, and I think that's what they're trying to get also with this. We actually studied Supreme Court cases, case law. My guys knew the Peyton rule. They knew people versus the war. They knew Terry versus Ohio. They knew uh, Pennsylvania versus Mims. These are all different cases that are effective for an anti-crime officer. They knew that each levels of encounters are intrusive. That's what's so imperative about the shield. The, us bearing the shield is what makes us different from security guards. The security guard is a witness, someone that observes, does surveillance, and reports. But what makes a police officer, a cop, different is that shield bears the right to be intrusive, to be nosy, to ask questions. If you're at a level two for the public, they understand it means the common law right of inquiry. When you engage someone in a conversation, that you ask intrusive questions so that they incriminate themselves, which could lead to a detention, which is a level three stop where you have reasonable suspicion. And you work your way through that ladder eventually to get you to probable cause where you make that arrest. So these things are all don't legality. Why? It's so important that myself and the teams, and I'm sure the teams of other priests, went out with knowledge because knowledge is power. Confidence brings confidence. If we didn't have this knowledge, we would not be confident. And then once it reaches court, we would not need prosecution. In a Wade hearing, a MAP hearing, these things would get suppressed and they would never make it the prosecution. We don't want to take our own image. We want our cases to go to prosecution. The district attorneys over time, especially when it comes to gun cases, they get to know the anti-crime guys. It's a small amount of guys and they're constantly there dealing with firearms. So that they, there becomes a rapport. And we don't want to take that. We don't want to take that image. And we don't want to have, uh, we don't want to be found not credible. Our testimonies, our articulation has to be credible to meet prosecution. Yeah. So, so I do think I agree with the first part, which says the the interview serves as a rare, unvarnished glimpse into the mind of an NYPD officer uh, regarding how you did police work and anti and what anti crime is. I you know using the word a controversial police unit i mean whatever controversial to who you know i I think most of the public liked it you know the the police the same police reformers that don't like it but i i don't understand the statement including a significant number of incidents that advocates for reform say can cause lasting harm to both individuals and communities i really don't i don't understand what he's getting at there um you know what incidents specifically what will cause lasting harm and to who, you know, individuals and communities. I, w- I would like that phrase broken down. I would then, again, any of you police reformers, any of you police experts like Jose LaSalle, like the maniac at the NYLCU, and we'll get to their statements in a couple of minutes. But, you know, you guys, again, you're welcome to come on here and we could have a normal civil conversation like gentlemen and, and ladies. And you could we could reimagine policing right here. Um, so for over four hours, Dim, 42, portrayed himself as a police officer motivated by a desire to help the public. 
doing what he was trained to do and what the public and the bosses expected of him. Nearly always in encounters with suspects in serious crimes such as shootings and robberies. He argued that while the techniques for arresting suspects could be appear ugly, including punches to the face and to the head to gain compliance, they were often necessary. And he quotes you here. We're seeking out those in possession of illegal firearms and those who did shootings. So in many cases, they're going to fight because they don't want to go to prison for a long period of time. They have to give up maybe family, kids, or a job, so they don't want to go in, Dim told the city in an interview. And it's human nature at that point. It's fight or flight. And unfortunately, when you form a tactical blam and we do a good job of isolating the perpetrator, their only option is to fight, he added. And our only option is to keep each other safe. What do you think about that statement, Tim? Well, that's true. What, and, that's, and that's the part that I, I find convoluted. And to this point and to this day, pre-George Floyd, and especially post-George Floyd, I'm confused when the public talks about reimagining police work and that they're surprised that we would have to deploy punches in certain situations. Here we are, in most cases, approaching violent perpetrators. In some cases, they're targeted. We know who they are. So there's already a heightened sense of fear, especially for myself as a leader of a team, not only is the concern for just my own well-being, but I have to ensure that five other men and women are safe. So I have to worry where I'm accountable for where they are at all times and what condition they are in. Because God forbid it doesn't go well. Their wives or husbands, brothers, sisters, families, who is the first person that they're going to come to to say what went wrong? Why is my son, why is my husband, why is my wife dead? So I had a responsibility to keep these men safe. And it's unfortunate what they don't understand is how fearful and scary it is. Every time, and I can tell you this, I probably got out of the car thousands of times to approach someone that was on foot, a pedestrian that may be in possession of a legal firearm or a car. And every time, it's a scary thing. I don't think there was ever a time that we grabbed someone with a legal firearm that it wasn't scary. And I think people don't understand. Imagine, I, 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 I remember I explained, I think, on one of our podcasts about having your hands wrapped around your chest and someone trying to grab them apart. Imagine tussle with someone and also trying to grab an illegal firearm off their head, or one that's around their their chest with a trouser belt that's through the trading guard, or inside their pants. Sometimes these guys have two or three pairs of pants, and you're trying to get to that firearm, and it's a race of who's going to get to that firearm first. And I want the public to understand, here I did this police work for 18 years and nine months, and with thousands of encounters, thousands, not one time in my career have I ever discharged my firearm. And I could count on one hand how many times I actually pointed it. And for that, for that time that I did, I got a substantiated complaint. So I'm really confused of how does the public expect police officers to approach someone that may be in possession of a legal firearm? 
And I ask some of the public, especially those that talk about reimagining police work, how would they feel in this situation? Well, to me, I think it goes back to the Dunning-Kruger effect. I mean, here we have one of the staffers on the mayor's team, Chris Bow, who talks about police officers and other types of humans, nurses and firemen, and he talks about people like they're nothing. And for him, it's just another day. Ah, being a cop is a cushy gig. Ah, you can get shot. Yes, for him, getting shot would be okay. But just on his demeanor and, and the way he carries himself in his disposition, the way he talks about people, I think we can infer that he would not have the courage to do this type of police work. And, and there you go. I think it's the Dunning-Kruger effect. The least amount you know about a subject, the more you think you could do it. The least you know about a subject, the easier you think it is. And the reason for that is he thinks it's so easy. And I'll take that as a compliment because the men and women of the NYPD are so good at what they do that they make it look easy. And they make it look and give the appearance that it is that easy to control a city of eight some odd million people. I mean, this is mounds and mounds of myriads in the city that we control. I, I, I just don't understand. And that's why I said, what do they want to see? What are our options to approach violent perpetrators? We don't know. We don't know because they haven't told us. They, they, you know, the, the criminal justice reformers, the police reformers, they have no clear, no clear message, including Eric Adams and even the leadership in the police department right now. What is the message? How are we driving crime down? They tout when murders and shootings are down, but what they never tell you what they did to bring them down. They have no idea because they, they don't they don't there is no there is no plan where you you know and I'll just I'll just push back on the portray part. I think you're you've been here, we've done a couple of shows together, you are spilling your heart out, you oh open to telling. I don't think you're selling anything to anybody. You're not running for office. You're not trying to get votes. You have nothing to gain and everything to lose by coming out and speaking. So I don't think that you're portraying yourself. I think that if 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 they want to say anything that, oh, this is, you believe that you're doing the right thing, maybe. Maybe like that could be a critical thing, but I don't think you're portraying yourself. I think you were just telling from your perspective. Um, and uh goes on to further business as usual but criminal justice reformers who listened to the podcast said they heard someone too singularly focused on arrests as a path to public safety and dismissive about the concerns about the constitutional rights of those arrested they also balked at Dim's dismissal of the oversight by the CCRB and other bodies, which they deem essential to maintaining a check on police powers to deprive people of their freedom. So first off, you described in detail many facets of police work, not just the anti-crime work, but you did defend that necessary work as getting guns off the street. Um, you know, I don't think I think that, yes, you were singularly focused on violent perpetrators because that's what you did. 
that was your forte. You did not say that that's, you said the other things were necessary. Community policing was necessary. Going out there and doing stuff with the kids. Um, you know, I don't see anything about here about how you volunteer your time and take the explorers out and do all of the other things that you don't give yourself a pat on the back for with the community. Um, and I, again, I don't think you, you bulked at the dismissal of the oversight by the CCRB. You said that it's being used punitively and you want to, you want to see it, you want to see it used as a, as a training tool. And when, and when punishment is necessary, yes, punishment should be necessary. You didn't bark at, you didn't, you didn't say, Oh, who cares about these guys? You didn't do that at all. And again, CCRB, John Darsh, whoever else, whoever your, your chair is or your chief, you're more than welcome to come on here again. You know, I know you guys, let's go, let's do it. Let's have the conversation. Like, I, I don't I don't see what's so scary about that. What do you think about those statements, Tim? Well, it, it's it, it's funny, these statements, because they're completely wrong. But so he's saying that we're singularly focused on arrest. Well, the answer to that question is yes. That was our mission. Our mission as an anti, anti-crime unit is to seek out violent perpetrators who may be in possession of illegal firearm, of illegal firearms. And that's why we have various type units. Each unit has their own mission. That's, and I did say on the podcast the interview, and obviously they, they didn't listen, or maybe they only listen to what they want. They have selective hearing. I did say that it's a balance. It's important to have anti-crime and to have cops that are out there addressing the community. But that was not my mission. My mission was not to go out there and to have Twitter for, Twitter photos and attend basketball games. My mission was as a team to target those in possession of illegal firearms before they can actually use that firearm and shoot someone. And again, and, and I thank you for highlighting that, I took the time out. I volunteered to help these young men and women grow in their lives. And most of them, you know, most of them, seek out a career in law enforcement because this is part of their growth in their youth, but some of them do not. But even so, I myself took the time to volunteer to help these kids because I believe the youth is the future. And I believe that I was extremely impactful in some of their lives. And even some of these kids, I att- one of the girls, I attended her uh, for Sweet 16. Uh, some of these kids, I've attended functions, uh, I've got to know their parents, uh, and I had a great relationship with these kids. And this was completely on my own time because my time that I spent, that I was paid to do, was getting illegal firearms. So I took the time that I was not getting paid to help these kids because I wanted to. I didn't have to. And actually, I still stay in contact with the Explorer coordinator from PSA 7. And we're in, right now we're working out doing some type of field trip. We're all get together to take these kids again. And obviously I'm not going to get paid. I'm not running for office. Like you said, it's just because it's something I choose to, I chose to do. And I continue to choose to do because I get great satisfaction of seeing these kids learn the basics of law enforcement, ensuring that they're doing well in school, watching them build confidence in this program. I mean, I, I've had boxing programs. I taught this kid boxing, situational awareness, self-defense, swimming. I taught some of these kids how to dance. 
I, I went and uh, I've given these kids awards as they get promoted within the ranks amongst the explorers. So some of the stuff is just a, you know, it's just complete farce. It's, it's just a, an attack to discredit me. And, and anyone that's actually listened to the interview, it knows it's completely wrong. And that's why I said, I, I, I am not afraid to speak to a left wing uh, organization or a right wing, right wing. I'm here just to tell the truth, genuinely tell the truth about the experience doing police work, police work in New York City. Well, well, I have an issue though with um, that you were singularly focused on arrest as a path to public safety, and this was the part that I, I really that bothers me and dismissive of concerns about the constitutional rights of those arrested, you know and. That's fine for anyone to make that statement, but what statement exactly are you talking about that Dim when Dim was dismissive of concerns about the constitutional rights? Which statements in particular? Because I don't remember any of them. Maybe I'm just a dumb cop. Maybe we're just you know we have our own dumb thing. But I would like to know exactly which part of that podcast did was Dim dismissive. Of, about the constitutional rights of those elect, are arrested when he was giving you case law. He was telling you what level the stops are, and he knew all the case law there. So that's it. That's ridiculous. And then Dim offered a perspective on his career that contrasted sharply with that of the police reform groups, obviously, that have criticized <laughs> the often aggressive policing of the NYPD's plainclothes anti-crime units, which were formally disbanded under de Blasio in mid-2020 and were reconstituted by Mayor Adams in February as neighborhood safety teams. The units had a reputation. Oh, it was in this article. I thought it was in a different one. The units, the units had a reputation for packing burly officers into unmarked cars that would circle be- the neighborhood before the doors suddenly flew open and the men jumped out to chase down people they targeted at times incorrectly as potential criminals. I'm sorry. Why is an innocent person running from the police? What, you know, as, as a police officer, we interact with hundreds, depending if you're in the city, maybe thousands a day. Um, we just jump out and chase people and, and at times incorrectly. Yes, we did stop people more often than none that was guilty of a minor crime that we let go. Let's get that straight. That we let go because we let him go. We said, okay, we just wanted to make sure he didn't have a gun or whatever else because we were in a targeted area where, where robberies, shootings, burglaries, whatever was going on in that area. It was a targeted area at a targeted time, and we were looking for targeted individuals, right? So, yes, at times that individual may not have been carrying a gun or didn't have property that we thought he stole or wasn't going out to rob somebody that day and – you know, it just and we let him go for the thing that he did, the jaywalking, the smoking marijuana, the littering, the spinning on the ground, whatever it may have been the reason we stopped him for. Um, so I don't know. I, I and again, you know, part of part of the anti-crime team, I, I will say, yeah, they had a reputation for packing burly offices into more cars. I get what you're saying, Dim, but I, and another aspect of it. Yes. You know. Guys that do that work, the men and women that do that work, do stay in shape. They do. And that doesn't mean that they're burly or brokey, but, like, I'm sorry. It's a, it's a very, very dangerous job. Um, uh, if you're out of shape and your adrenaline pumps, 
at the same rate that it does at each time an anti-crime officer, you're not going to live a long, healthy life. So, and, and you, you know, you're, you're going to be in stressful situations so much that it's, it's very important that you stay physically healthy. So I don't know what that statement means. I don't, I don't really, I don't, what, what, what do you expect someone not to be in shape? <laughs> I, don't, I don't understand what you want there. Um, you have anything to add on that one? Well, I think you're hundred percent right. I mean, I, I would take pride, you know, I, I used to tell my teams that it's, it counteracts each other. And it's total balance that you're, you have to prepare and train your mind. So I'd constantly make them read case law, constantly read, make them read current events. I would actually pull up videos and, and decipher them and we would go over them because your brain is a muscle. But alongside that, I always instilled in my teams that they had to exercise. And I say exercise because for some guys, weights is what motivates them. But for some guys, not, that's not their motivation. For some guys, it's boxing, it's jujitsu, it's wrestling, it's yoga, it's uh, maybe swimming. But I used to instill because I do believe that it's important to have the mental aspect and the physical aspect and they work together. I mean – I, this is something I learned in the Marine Corps, even at West Point, which I think is probably one of the most elite schools in the entire country. It's mandatory that they have high grades, but what's also mandatory is, I don't know if you know this, but every West Point cadet, it's mandatory that they take part in a physical and usually grueling type sport, whether it's boxing, basketball, but some type of very active sport, because there has been studies that it goes hand to hand. So yes, I would instill that in my teams. I wanted my officers to be in tip top shape because if your body is in tip top shape, it goes along with your mind being in tip top shape. So yes, we want these guys to survive. And what the public does understand is every time you approach even just one person and the behavioral indicators mimic the results of a firearm that you had before, it's, and that's what it's said, that the public thinks we just swing open the door and jump out. Well, guess what? If you just swung open the door and jumped out, you would have five cops killed constantly. Every time we open that door, it's a tactical plan. I used to strategically, if someone was walking down the street, if we thought they had behavioral indicators that led to a firearm, I would always have someone get out of one of the cars, maybe a block or two away from that person of interest and walk behind them. And then the car would pass that person of interest so that this person would have to focus on two things at one time. So that when we are exiting or disembarking the vehicle, that we can actually get close to this person of interest before he can make a decision of pulling that firearm and God forbid shooting someone. And we all saw in the case of Brian Moore, when he pulled up parallel to the person of interest, and he got shot and killed and lost his life. How serious anti-crime is and how a stop could be so controversial for the cop and not just a person of interest. Uh, that's it's, it, it's again, there's, there's no, there's no understanding of police work. They're not even trying to understand it. The article goes on and it's pretty lengthy to demonize anti-crime about, oh, that somebody was killed once, what this person said, what that person said, then more of your statements, and then it gets to the good parts. <laughs> Gen- uh, Vine- the good part. Yeah. 
Genvine Wong, an attorney from the Legal Aid Society Cop Accountability Project. So I would think she would be a police expert if you were in this position. Okay, um, said that while Dim seemed to genuinely want to help people, so she obviously listened to the podcast. His approach, <laughs> his approach was colored by seeing bad guys as the only path to safety. She said it's part of a wider cultural problem at the NYPD and other departments where the quick and dirty solutions get glorified while the harm they cause the communities gets ignored. Um, so, again, I got a big problem with your statement, Jen Vine. That is absolutely insanity. I, I mean, seriously, you got to come on here and talk about this. This, this is like – what are you? What actually are you trying to say? Are you trying to say that because we went out and arrested criminal perpetrators, that we caused harm to the community? We focused on getting violent repeat offenders, and by doing so, that causes harm to the community. Because guess what? We're not doing that right now, and we're not doing it at the rate we did. And look at New York City right now. Who is really causing harm to the community? Who is really causing harm to the community? I believe it's people like you. It's attorneys who have never been in the arena who want to make these swift, swift judgments on people. This is like this is a bad, bad statement. It really is. And I'm going to finish up with it. It says and then and then tell me what you what, what your message is to her. All right. It's it's an it's not enough to change the policies. It's about the training in these offices on how police constitute constitutionally, and it's really about on how to police constitutionally, and it's really about changing their views to change that warrior cop mentality. Said Wong. Dim, do, do you know really? Like seriously, could could you, do you know what she's trying to say? What, what is she trying to say to you? You know, I, I'm quite confused about that statement. I. I, I think she's trying to discredit us by going by saying that we are warriors. I, I mean, what are we supposed to be, lambs? And, and I mean, we all know, most of us know, back in the early 80s, there was a movie called Officer and a Gentleman. And what does that mean? An officer, someone that leads men and women in uniform in the military, potentially combat, is a warrior. But also a gentleman and obviously today's day a gentlewoman right so what i don't understand on the the derogatory term and i believe that she's saying it's derogatory being a warrior a cop has to be a warrior when you're pursuing violent perpetrators in possession of a legal firearm because if you don't have the warrior mindset the ultimate result can be the end of your life I think sometimes they forget that that's what's what's at stake here. What's at stake here is, you know, in the police world, we don't have an eraser to erase mistakes from a pencil. We're talking about lives and mistakes can cost lives. Yes, I think they only look at the mistakes that cost lives for persons of interest. But what about the lives of police officers? And yet in this this substance here. And I say substance because she's trying to put some information out there. It's it's really convoluted. I don't agree with it. But she's saying that the police officers are going out 
and they're violating constitutional rights and it's hurting the community getting bad guys. Now that we're not out there getting the bad guys, these bad guys are on the street shooting constantly. I mean, in some cases, I remember I referred back in the podcast, there was someone we arrested six times in a calendar year for six various shootings. And in the sixth time, they actually killed their adversary. And the adversary met his demise and finally went to jail. I mean, I got, that was a quick and dirty solution. To. That was a quick and dirty solution. Yeah. That's what we are supposed to do. We're supposed to get the bad guys understand this ideology. How does that hurt communities? We're taking away someone's son who shot someone? Well, what are we supposed to do? Leave him out there? He's gonna, and unfortunately, we've seen it too many times in the South Bronx. Sometimes when these bullets are flying, and you can't, once you fire that bullet, you can't get it back. Unfortunately, in many cases, it's innocent people that get hurt. A young eight-year-old girl got shot and killed. I remember there was a four-year-old boy who got shot and killed in, in housing. I mean, these are horrific incidents. And every time anti-crime police officers retrieve a firearm, they could save more than one life. Those firearms have several bullets and they could hurt more than one person. What are we saying here, uh, Juan? I, I don't understand. I, I, I don't know. I, I would really like to know, first off, what, what are the quick and dirty solutions that you're talking about? I don't know what's quick and dirty about going to do police work. And I don't know how police work, how going after violent repeat offenders, again, I don't know how it causes harm to the communities. I know not going after them causes much harm to our communities. And we could see that in all, all of what people would love to say as the are underserved communities, right? We are underserving them now terribly because where are all the shootings happening? Where are all the violent crime happening in black and brown neighborhoods? Why? Because not because we're not doing quick and dirty, dirty uh, solutions anymore. It's because we're not policing there. And I'd also like to know, I'd really also like to know what policies specifically you had a problem with and why. I want to know that. And I'd also like to know what you mean on training these officers how to police constitutionally are you trying to say that we were violating the law because we clearly were not maybe your law school wasn't that good that's maybe you need to go back to law school because we could sit down and go over the penal law and there's two parts of the law it's reading the law then there's understanding the law and there's actually a third part it's going out and enforcing the law Right. I think you only read that law. And I don't, and even that I, I again, I invite you to come on here again and tell us what part of that. And and yes, there is a warrior cop mentality. We are not security guards. The statement has been made in the police department by numerous chiefs that we're, we're no longer want warriors. We want guardians. Look what's happening. Look what's you know why there's a rise in crime because we have guardians. That aren't like, no, we need to get out there and be part of this community. We're part of the community. We need to go out there and police. Um, So then it goes reasons not to engage. And this was really your message, right? This is really what you what the the whole thing. And this is what what got what since gaining the ability to prosecute its own cases at administrative trials overseen by the NYPD in 2012. The CTRB managed to get only one NYPD member terminated. 
Daniel Pantaleo, who was involved in the killing of Eric Gardner in 2014. So I'm just right then and there. You mean wrongly terminated. That's that's one. Um, with the commissioner of the NYPD having the final say over the disciplinary outcome and even the ability to overrule the guilting findings by the administrative judge. The CTRB's recommendations for penalties against officers have been downgraded or rejected more than 70% of the time in serious cases, according to a 2020 analysis by the New York Times. Last year, following the pressure from the city council, the NYPD implemented a new disciplinary matrix that lays out the range of prescribed penalties for misconduct. The police commissioner is required to explain in writing departure from the standards, but the commissioner still has the final say on discipline, a power advocates have pressed to remove. That's, that's interesting. So that matrix comes from the city council. What's what's there? How many, how many police experts do you think we have in New York City Council? <laughs> I'm going to guess it's probably zero. I'm going to say it's zero myself. I mean, uh, you know, I know you have some you have some supporters, Vicky Palladino, Joe Borelli, Bob Holden, um, Ina Vernikoff. Um, you know, you got a couple of guys there. You got a couple of guys and girls that support the police, but I wouldn't consider any of those people police experts by any means, even though they are supporters. And on the opposite side of that, you have Justin Brennan, you have Tiffany Caban, you have OC, OC, uh, OC Che. You have all these people that are really, they're not, they're, they're, Justin Brennan was a rocker, a failed rocker, drug addict who became a who became a city council. Uh, he really he's really a loser, real big loser from Brooklyn, lived with his mother until he was in city council. Um, and then the rest of these guys are just children of privilege. Kristen Fahalem, Kristen Richardson, children of privilege, lifelong students. And they're writing our matrix. So we're, we're definitely going to do a show on that one. That's a uh, that, that's that's definitely interesting. Oh, 100%, I could say the answer is zero without having any prerequisite knowledge of of these lifestyles or what their education history or work history is. Because if they had any police experience, that diaphragm law would have never been passed. So just knowing about that diaphragm law, I can confidently say that zero of the city council members that you just named have zero police experience. And I, I, I want to add one more thing. I, I know it sounds kind of funny, but it's true. When Juan was listening to this four-hour interview, did she have a blender on? Because obviously she didn't hear it because she's saying that we're not using constitutional rights. Well, if that was the case, the dirty solutions to police were we wouldn't have had a four-hour interview because I'm pretty confident we could go back. And I particularly gave expertise information that I utilized with my teams in detail of how we – conducted stops with legality so that led to prosecution. So for her to say that it wasn't constitutionally correct, obviously she didn't really listen to it. Maybe she listened to parts that she wanted to, or again, selective hearing by those with a specific agenda. And, uh, and Yoav, not that again, I think your article is pretty good, but I did go into detail on why, the NYPD often does not find this, the, the same finding as the CCRB. I went into detail on that podcast, and 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 that's legit. Um, 
So the widespread use of body cameras by police officers in New York City has helped the CCRB reach more definitive conclusions. Between May 17 and June 19, the agency closed 76% of cases with video footages based on the evidence as compared to a 39% closure rate on merits when no video was available. Dim said that the scrutiny that comes from body cameras and from the CCRB has had a deterrent effect on the behaviors of those officers, particularly those likely to accumulate accumulate complaints because of their work in the anti-crime units. He said one of his best sergeants transferred to the operation units to sit behind a desk rather than face CCRB CCRB probes. They they do a couple more statements that you were in there and. Um, among the 52 allegations that CCRB had substantiated against Dim in incidents that took place since November 2018 are seven instances of improper force, four instances of gun pointed, all four in one case, two complainants of restricting someone's breathing, one charge of making an official false statement, and one of using a nightstick as a club against protesters. The use of the nightstick occurred during the the brutal police corralling of a mass arrest of protesters in the Bronx Mott Haven neighborhood on June 4, 2020, according to the nonprofit Human Rights Watch. Cops violated international human rights law. Dim said he cut a deal with the CCRB prosecutors as he was retiring after rejecting the first offer they made that would cost him 64 vacation days for five of cases while three cases were closed upon his departure from the force. So for those of you that didn't listen to our episode that we did with Richie in the Bronx, Dim highlighted that June 4th, 2020 incident. I mean, that's a good one. Dim, would you mind just going over that real quick with us? I mean, absolutely. I mean, that was, you know, Absolutely. So June 4, 2020, uh, we know is that day is infamous. So there was, and you say this thing was staged, you're 100% right, because it was orchestrated and it was staged nationwide. There were riots on that particular day. And what, and when I remember on that particular day in the South Bronx, remember I was telling you about 149 and 3rd, which is called the hub of the South Bronx, is the second largest shopping district in the entire city. It's a high volume area, very busy. And at that time, we had, Numerous riders, and I call them riders as they're riding, assembling at 149 and 3rd, getting ready for their riots and protests. And at that time, we had credible information that had led to a car that was occupied with occupants that had illegal firearms, and they had a nexus to this particular riot. And there was another car where occupants were arrested and they had Molotov cocktails inside that car that they occupied, which was another nexus. It was tied to this riot. So here on June 4, 2020, uh, we were instructed to kettle. And at the time, I didn't know what kettling was to corral this rioting crowd to try to stop the actions that they were taking. So they were on 135 and Brook. And at the same time, I remember we were trying to help them and protect them. Because this was right next to housing on Brook Avenue. And the thugs in housing did not want them there. They would tell them, get the fuck out of it. We didn't want them. Obviously, because they were bringing more police attention. And at this time, I'll never forget, we were downhill. It was downhill that these riders were coming down. And we were staged so we could try to stop their actions. We couldn't see what exactly where it was coming from. But I remember there was bricks being thrown. There was urine. There were sticks. And what really stuck out to me is I saw 
a couple of these rioters, they jumped over a fence and they were trying to pick up a wheelbarrow to throw at the cops. So at this point, here we are at the bottom of the hill. I couldn't see too much. The officers were really in a, in a disadvantage as far as their strategical position because the riders were now uphill as they were coming downhill. So at this point, there was a car. So I, I said to myself, I learned in the Marines, you have to adapt and overcome. So I utilized by climbing atop, first up atop of a car so that I could get a better vantage point so I could actually identify specific perpetrators that were throwing these type of items. And at this point, yes, we did cause damage to that car, but unfortunately it was incidental to trying to gain a better vantage point as, as there was egress from this wild riding crowd. And at this point, I tried to use my baton to create space so they could get into this crowd so I could assist the police officers because they would get viciously attacked. And here I was substantiated for a complaint. And the substantiated complaint was for utilizing my baton by hitting, hitting numerous individuals and they were all unknown complainants. And that complaint was substantiated. And they were not, it was not a peaceful protest as it was referred to. It was an all out Yeah, so so Dim so Dim is in the middle of a violent riot. He's in the middle of a violent riot. He uses he uses his nightstick against unknown individuals. What that means is they have a video camera, but no one ever came to complain about it. Probably because they live in Ohio um, and they only got flown <laughs> in for the day and got a hundred dollars. Um, so he he used his nightstick to bring restore order and he got substantiated charges against an unknown person which who didn't complain about him who was violently rioting and destroying property so that's sick so let's go again so there's a ton of other stuff in here he really did write a lengthy article about the podcast and what you said i don't think i think a lot of the impactful stuff though really wasn't in there um, other than, you know, you, you are right. Like the, the, that one line where you, you know, you did say like, it's the, the fear of CCRB is deter is deterring cops from doing police work. I mean, you could ask any cop on the street. I mean, that's, this isn't like some conspiracy theory. People are, the CCRB is being used punitively. I ask them how they feel about the body camera. You talk about all that in that podcast, he labels all that out. So now here's, here's one of my favorite parts, though. Jose LaSalle, who as a co-founder of the Cop Watch Group patrol unit, has for years kept tabs on DIM and his anti-crime unit that covers the public housing areas in two precincts in the Bronx, characterized DIM's do-gooder version of his career as full of crap. That's really well thought out. Very thought out, Jose. Jose, you've been asked several times to come on here. You have not responded one time. So just let's get that straight. He knew if he did not retire, his ass was going to receive some serious discipline. Charges and fired, said LaSalle, who won a nearly 900,000 wrongful arrest lawsuit in 2019 against him and other members of PSA7. In his sick mind, he really believes he did nothing wrong, added LaSalle. All baseless statements 
And again, I'm going to go back to Jose LaSalle got a $900,000 settlement because he's in cop watch, because he's tied into all of these left wing politicians, because New York City does not fight any of these frivolous lawsuits. None of them. They just get paid out. Sue the city. You're going to get paid. Get arrested. The DA will throw the case out. Sue the city. You're going to get paid. Every attorney knows it. Every perp knows it. I mean, look at the payouts. They're in the billions. Look at them. They're in the billion. They're in the hundreds of billions every year. Look at them. Let's go to New York City law. Go to New York City law department. Look at the lawsuits. Look at how many actually go to court. <laughs> Very few. I, 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 I don't want to say like exactly, but it was it was minimal. I think it was like two percent when I looked. I don't, I don't remember exactly. Um, on the podcast, Dim characterized LaSalle as spreading a one-sided ideology that's critical of policing. Yet at one point, he thinks many of the anti-police advocates genuinely believe that work is helping the, the public, even though he disagrees. Dim, what are your words for uh, our good friend Jose LaSalle? Well, it's funny you say that because I actually spoke to Yoav. And uh, I was under the impression that Yoav and Jose LaSalle had a, conversa- a meaningful conversation. Uh, you know, via phone, but apparently you couldn't even get him on the phone. This was actually through some type of cryptic messaging. So I, I don't understand, Jose LaSalle, you were following me for years. We actually only had one interaction where that did lead to that lawsuit. Uh, I, I wasn't the only person. There was several, several police officers and high-ranking uh, officers and uh, police involved in his arrest. And I actually take fault with the district attorney's office on that particular case. I'd like to go back in that particular case when Jose LaSalle was arrested for using a, a two-way trans, uh, transmitting radio. The district attorney's office had went back and forth and they had, they had released him. So it was under the impression that they were declining to prosecute. They released him. He went back to the precinct and picked up his property. And then an hour before his arraignment, they said he's ready to get arraigned. Where is he? It was actually the district attorney's office that made the mistake. So I'm not to, don't blame on them, but these things do happen. Things happen with paperwork, but this was all a mistake. So an hour before his arraignment, actually, I, I did my homework and I found, uh, I think it was on Instagram or something. I saw a picture of him with a, a picture of a menu. So I knew he was at the diner. So we went myself and uh, other persons from, from PSA 7 at the time so that we could bring him for his arraignment. And that's why he won the money. So, and after that, I don't know why, for some reason, Jose LaSalle decided to target myself and the teams. And he did surveillance, constantly following me and watching. And yet, all those years, you're saying all these years of following me, since 2016 when we had that arrest, this is with all this valuable information you claim to compile, this is the only s- statement that you could come up with, which lacked substance. So I say to Jose LaSalle, let's have a forum. John and I are inviting you to speak out on all the wrongdoings. You want to help your community? Help them. Let's have an adult professional conversation and talk about how to better the community. And all you can say is full crap. Well, you know, it's, uh, I-, I guess I-, I shouldn't expect any more from you. And that's 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 the best information you could give after all these years. And what I could t- tell Jose Lasalle is, obviously he has some type of axe to grind. This all started when his stepson was stopped years. I think he said 2010. 
And uh, he really let his emotion impact on how he's going out there and conducting this cop watch. Because there's all positive interactions he does not film. But I think he's quietly mistaken. I think that he is hurting the community. You're trying to aid civilian complaint review board and weaponize these cameras so that the police department does not do their job. You're hurting the community. That's what I can tell you, Jose. You're hurting the people that you claim that you want to help. And, and you're being a coward about it. You know, you could come on here, have a conversation. You can have thousands of cops hear what you got to say, and you're not doing it. So, you know, I, I personally think if anyone's full of shit, it's you. So that's my opinion. Until, until you come on the show, I will dog everything that you do because I, 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 I will not take you as a real person. I will not even respect your organization. So that let's, let's go back. And then it jumps back to our good friend Wong at the Legal Aid Society. Acknowledge that the NYPD's culture of rewarding aggressive law enforcement is a significant factor in preventing officers from rethinking their policing approach. One, I don't know what the hell she's talking about. Again, rewarding aggressive law enforcement. Please describe what aggressive law enforcement is. If you mean proactively policing, if that's aggressive, I'm sorry. Yes, you pay the police to keep everyone safe, to go after criminals who commit crimes. That's what the police do, Wong. And so, and, you know, I don't know. So I don't know why cops would want to rethink their policing approach when, again, we're not even giving them anything to think about because you can't clearly state what this reimagination of the police is. She said that the NYPD often dismissed the significance of CCRB finding and was internally sending a different messages for what it expected from officers on the ground. Um, again, the CCRB investigations sucked. That's why the NYPD didn't substantiate any of them. That's why often that happens. They're, they do not – it's a civil hearing, and their standard of proof is much less. And they, and they go – they base things off feelings, not actual evidence. So that's one, you know. They're, so, you, you know, they're, they're trying to find people guilty without giving them due process. It's wrong. The culture of impunity has existed at the NYPD for so long. And it's incredibly hard to root out, said Wong, that this NYPD undermining of CCRB finding, it just means officers aren't going to take substantiated CCRB complaints seriously. I'm like, I I honestly, she has zero clue what she's talking about. Again, every officer out there is afraid of CCRBs. You spoke on it. I spoke on it. I mean, look what they did. They ruined your career. You couldn't be a captain. You had to retire. I have no idea what this girl's talking about. And why do you have those CCRBs? Because you went out and did your job. The more you do your job, the more CCRBs you're going to have. Not because someone even complains about you anymore. Just because the system that's in place now, cops are going to self-report. Then what would you like to say to, to Wong again here? <laughs> You know, <laughs> I got so much to say. I need about six hours. But I can tell you what, as you're talking, I'm thinking to myself, she keeps, you know, we're harping on her saying, we need to rethink police work. But guess what, Miss Wong? The cops have already rethought how they're doing police work. It's happening. They're thinking to themselves, you know what? I used to go out there and I would stop that guy drinking the beer and it might lead to a firearm or that disorderly. Uh, crowd. I would stop those persons of interest, those 
individuals that are intent on doing harm, I would stop those crowds. But yes, now they're rethinking. Guess what they're doing now? They're standing idle and they're just watching the show because they understand that interaction is not going to help them. It's only going to burn them because if that interaction does not meet the optics of the Civilian Complaint Review Board, then they will be held up. They will be handicapped in their their potential for growth in their career, such as promotion, transfers. I mean, absolutely, they rethought their ideology. I can tell you this. I'll never forget last summer in the South Bronx, the way the streets looked. I said, oh, my God, it looks like a third world country here. It's insane. We had all the time modules out there. What does that mean, overtime modules? Groups of one sergeant and eight cops in a specific area as a crime deterrent. There was all out. What does all out mean? Cops from other precincts in the area to prevent crime by being a deterrent. And you know what it looked like? Just a bunch of potted plants and statues because none of the cops were being intrusive. They would just stand there and watch the show because no one wants to get hurt. Think about this. Can you imagine the public... Imagine you're a construction worker and you go to work every day and you're told, listen, we have two months to build this house. And you say to yourself, how do I go to work and not put a nail on the wall so I don't get in trouble? Well, that's what it is being a police officer right now. If I go to work and do my job, I'm going to get in trouble. So they are everything. And I can tell you the streets in the South Bronx, they were looking horrendous. And I said to myself, how does the good people right now live if they if you went outside of some of these blocks, 143 Street, 3rd Avenue. There was cars, double park and triple park car, triple park, that cars could not even use this as traffic thoroughfares anymore. I mean, it was chaotic. And the police, we stood down. Yes, because Civilian Complaint Review Board was holding us back. The repercussions for that. Guess what? Guys want to get promoted in their careers. They want to move on. And in most cases, those active police officers, and I have some at PSA 7, they're taking deals from the Civilian Complaint Review Board 50, 60 some odd days just so that they can get promoted and Civilian Complaint Review Board gets their punitive uh, results and they take a pound of flesh. Yeah. And speaking of the Civilian Complaint Review Board, it's funny. All the stuff we said about them, all the times they demonize you, they tried to fire you, this is all they had to say. CCRB spokesperson, spokesperson Cleo Calvo Platero noted instances of external cooperation of the CCRB findings. Basically, they just went over your history. Dim was found guilty in one of the two cases that went to administrative trial earlier this year and pleaded guilty in three of the remaining six cases. The CCRB is an independent and impartial agency that investigates misconduct and makes disciplinary recommendations to the police commissioner who has the final disciplinary authority, she said. To me, you know, I mean, I think... That was this was the biggest ex- expose of CCRB there's ever been. The internal workings we went through that, and they had absolutely nothing to say. When I know for a fact they listened to four hours of me and you speak, you know that that says a lot. That says again that they're, they're you're right up there with Jose LaSalle. 
you know, you don't want, I, you're not, I don't, I don't think you're, you're operating in the best interest. And that's why you don't want to sit down and have that conversation because there's some questions that not only do you not want to be answered, you don't even want them to be asked. So which, what's your opinion on that? Without, without a doubt. The Civilian Complaint Review Board claims that their best interest is for the people. Now, in that particular case that I was found guilty and substantiated for pointing my firearm at four separate individuals on the same incident, that is true. Yes, I did point my firearm. And sometimes pointing your firearm is necessary. These particular perpetrators are currently in for conspiracy for murder at this point. So, yes, sometimes you have to point your firearm at those that may have a firearm that could put you in danger and you could lose your life. So, yes, did I point my firearm? Yes. These TikTokers and CCRB want to make it sound like I just pointed my firearm at uh, innocent people that are walking down the street. And I could count on one time, uh, on one hand, how many times I pulled my firearm. And now, uh, oh, okay. The CCRB claims that they want to help people. And the irony is it, it's completely the opposite because they're hurting the public. In this particular case where they found me substantiate but point my firearm at four separate individuals in the same incident, that part is true. I did point my firearm, but it was necessary. These particular perpetrators are now in jail for conspiracy for murder. So sometimes the point of the firearm is necessary when faced with danger where you can lose your own life or the members of your team. But I remember in this particular case, it was about a four and a half hour interview. And about half of it was spent because the Civilian Complaint Review Board wanted me to disclose the identity of a confidential informant that I had, a credible source of information that led to the encounters with these particular perpetrators on this day. There was an ongoing beef between two different housing developments that resulted in the demise of several perpetrators from different crews. And also there was an innocent woman that was walking with her children on October Halloween of 2018. And a credible informant that I had, a source of information that led to the quelling, the calming of this beef on this particular day the Civilian Complaint Review Board stopped the interview several times and they wanted me to disclose the information to this confidential informant, which I would not do. I said, if you have to substantiate, then so be it, because I will not disclose the information of an informant because that could put this person in harm's way. And unfortunately, it will lead to their death. But they didn't care. They kept, kept persisting that they wanted that information. And that's my belief. That's why they official statement because the internal affairs never had a concurrent jurisdiction uh concurrent investigation along with this no no, no, no. i'm good all right <laughs> sorry it broke up a little bit here but uh okay nah, no problem. sorry so now we'll get to the last guys assistant policy director michael sisti added that cops have historically acted like any oversight is too much to bear the problem is not that civilian complaints and our mechanisms for civilian oversight make it impossible for police to do their jobs. The problem is a policing culture that refuses to accept any outside limits on their authority, he said. And when that authority includes the power to detain people, remove them from their homes and communities, and to use force and even deadly weapons against them, it is by no means too much to ask that their conduct be subject to oversight. Sistiski added, we know that the police will not police themselves. 
an approach that officers cannot or will not do their jobs with basic accountability when they break their own rules should compel all New Yorkers to question whether policing is the answer to community safety. So basically, he's saying abolish the police. He's saying um, he's completely wrong that anyone's we didn't say anything about accountability We no one. None of us have a problem with having accountability. We're saying that when you actually do your job, you are being penalized for it, not for breaking any rules, for doing your job the way you were trained to do it in the guidelines by the law. That's what we're saying. You're very welcome to come on here and talk to us. I would love to hear what your thoughts might be for whether policing is the answer to community safety, because it seems like you're questioning it. So I would like to know what your thoughts would be to if we actually went away from the policing for safety. I'd like to know that. So please, please come on. Uh, Eric, what, what would you like to say to, to our good friend here at the New York Civil Liberties Union? First of all, first of all, I have to say, wow, are there people out there that actually listen and follow this Sisitsky, this policy, assistant policy director for the New York Civil Liberties Union? This is scary. So this particular person. Obviously, he's supposed to be an intelligent person, right? He, he's a policy director. He believes that we're a safer place without the police. First of all, we can all agree. Without even pursuing violence, if we didn't have police resources for one hour in New York City, with the amount of car accidents that would, that would accumulate and the violence that would cause total gridlock, just from car accidents, we would be unsafe just there. I mean, this is scary, this, this statement. And obviously from this statement, this particular person here just clearly just wanted to be heard because he has an agenda. This is an extension of the defund the police movement. Because clearly he did not listen to the podcast interview at all. Not even a minute of it. Because in that podcast interview, you and I clearly discussed that the police officers would we out someone that does not belong? We police each other. So clearly he did not hear that part. Clearly he did not hear how we talk about how we want to keep these streets safe and how the anti-crime units, that's their goal. And the patrol officers that are in uniform, how there's a balance of all of us working together to keep these streets safe. I mean, first of all, this ideology is just insane. This is completely about abolishing the police, defund the police movement, he completely has an agenda, and this is scary. But like you said, I invite you, Mr. Sosinski, or however you say your name, to come on this podcast. And I would like you in detail to explain how the police department is actually not keeping the streets safe. I mean, what, what are we supposed to do if there's someone out there that's committing burglaries in your community, in someone's community, committing robberies? Who is going to investigate these cases? Who is going to pay some organization to pay for these cases? It's just insanity. I, I don't even know where this ideology comes from, but it's scary. And that's what I can say. It really is scary. Does this person really believe that? I mean, where does this person live? Does this person have a security team? I'm curious. 
That's a, that's a great question. I'm sure he's another child of privilege from the Civil, Civil Liberties Union. Um, but, you know, all in all, I got to say, I, I, I think that the podcast, I think that, the, you know, I think, like I said, I think if you read the podcast and you read the article, it's a rather long article. I, I do. I thank you for writing it, um, you know, and taking the time to listen. You know, I do think it leans more towards the police reformer side, but I, I, I do think it gives a fair perspective. And I've had a lot of cops that read it and told me that that they loved it and they didn't think anything bad of it. And I, I really don't either. It's the comments by the so-called police reformers that really get me. You know, I could critique anything the way somebody writes it, but, you know, I, I, I think all in all the article is good. And I think it, it's helping you get your message out there, Dim. And I think the more people that hear it, the more that are going to realize exactly what you're saying is exactly true, you know, um, but, you know, definitely the comments that they made didn't really go on the stuff we talked about. So it was really a deflection. I think I had comments from everybody from Wong, from Sistisky or however you say your name. And uh, definitely Jose LaSalle and the CCRB just, you know, it's funny. Like, you know, they were quick to, to get you. They were quick to make comments about you when you retired, um, but they didn't have anything to say here. So I find that, I find that very, I find that it's sad and a week. And I just think, I, I, I think, you know, I think, I think that, that podcast, that, that podcast, and then followed up with this article really highlighted the hypocrisy. So I, you know, I got to take my hat off the Eric. I think he did a great job. Um, so, you know, and you have to, I think he did a good job too. So, you know, that's it. That, that's really, that's the, my analysis of it. You have anything to add on it, Eric? Well, that's what I said. I agree to his credit. I do think that he tried to put some of the perspective out there. And unfortunately there was a lot of pushback from these other organizations. And I do think that I, I'm not saying that uh, he didn't come out and say it, but I got the impression. He probably got some pressure from his editors as well. But I do think based on those factors, those environmental factors, environmental factors that he has, he did do a good job. And I do appreciate the opportunity. And like I said, I'm willing to speak with anyone, left wing, right wing, center, because there's a thousand ways to tell a lie and one way to tell the truth. And I just want to tell the truth about police work and send that message out there that, yes, there is work to be done, but the police officers' hearts are in the right place and they're using skills, observation skills. Police officers, the men and women out there, they're talented and they go out there with the right intentions. And we all need to work together. But this, this ideology of abolishing and defunding the police is just complete insanity. And it, it, it hurts communities. It hurts us all. It's not the police officers hurting the communities. And I think, I think it's completely, completely overdone in his statement that the police officers are afraid of oversight. The police officers are understand from day one when you enter the police academy that you have oversight on all angles and you are held accountable because you have a lot of power. And with power, it comes responsibility and accountability and we all understand that and the most important we take pride in integrity we take pride in transparency and like i said if you drop a ten dollar bill on the floor in a lobby of a police department building you can come back in three weeks that ten dollar bill will be there so to sasitsky to wong to jose lasalle civilian complaint review board it's time that we have an open forum it's time that we have a discussion there's no need to hide 
There's no need to hide and hold back your responses. Come out and give us your opinions, but please correlate them with facts, not just what's anecdotal. No, yeah, I I agree. I mean, I I think I think I again, I think I think you highlighted it, man. I think I think it really I think it really really highlighted that the, a lot of it what we said is exactly on point. It's exactly true because there really was no pushback on the meat and potatoes of it. And again, with, what Eric was saying, what I'm saying is God good moral ethical police officers who are following the law their training and their procedure are getting made to look like they're terrible cops just how they did to eric dim by substantiating nonsense and by talking about the amounts that he had when we're in the age of self-reporting i mean I mean, like, if you get an actuary right now and say somebody went out there and did police work and responded to, I don't know, 100 jobs a month and arrested two people a month, and out of those two, and out of those 100 jobs and those two people, how many people would resist arrest uh, just based off of the numbers that we have? How many allegations that person would have in the now 25 year career? It would make, you know, you wouldn't even be in the top. You wouldn't even be in the top ten thousand, Tim. You know, um, so and, and you wouldn't. You wouldn't. You wouldn't even be in the top ten thousand. Um, so it's, it's, it's crazy. Like it's crazy to like talk about this. Like, oh yeah, this is horrible. These people need. They don't want any oversight. It's like, no, you are making police officers take a step back. Um, you know, guys that, you know, historically cops were making two arrests a month, active guys, guys that weren't so active, made a few arrests a year. You have guys that aren't making any arrests. I mean, it's, it, I, you, it's, it's almost impossible. It's almost impossible to walk out on New York City street as a police officer and not see a arrest. It's almost impossible. And it's funny you say that because I, I used to say the same thing. How do cops not go out there and make arrests? I remember at PSA 7, we had a parking lot right, right behind the precinct. I remember one day coming out, and it was a guy peeing right next, like right on top of my tire, right in the back of the precinct parking lot. I said, listen, you can, you can find a fraction right at the precinct. I mean, yeah. it's all over the place. And what the public doesn't understand, they think that arrests are the only uh, uh, – that arresting people is – a singularly mindset of of safety. But what they don't understand is there's so much caveats to make an arrest. Arrest is not just about that one person that we bring to justice. When we arrest someone, in many cases, arrests are about information because that arrestee may provide information on some other case or other cases. It may be a lead to a pattern. And when we arrest someone from that pattern, they might provide information on something else. So information is the key to success for police work. And that's information that we use to target violent offenders. That's information that we get from arrestees, uh, vital information. And, and there's so much with police work that obviously the, when I talk about this Dunning-Kruger effect, that people that have no idea about it just don't understand the, the inner linings, of it, the silver lining of police work. It's just, there's, it, it, like I said, it's big one giant one giant onion, and you would have to peel the layers off to really understand police work. It's fascinating, fascinating work, and so complex. 
All right, yeah. So, uh, yeah, okay, I'm looking forward to the next one. I think we definitely need to do something on all the insanity with the mandates um, that's going on currently in New York City. You know, everyone thinks that they came to an end when, in fact, they appealed. I've gotten hundreds of calls today, completely exhausted over it. <laughs> uh, but, like, you know, I think we, we we should do that. Maybe we'll get somebody on. But, uh, Eric, you know, I appreciate your time, brother. Guy, everybody, I appreciate you guys tuning in, listening to us. And, uh, you know, I thank you all. Thank you all for listening.